Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me begin this with a brief word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Pray that this will be a time which is well-pleasing to you and beneficial to everybody here and everyone who listens. We commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I talk funny. So, so without, with that out of the way, but also in the way, I want to have a quick look at language which fascinates me as a culture vulture. I'm not gonna get into world religions this morning. If you want that, I'm teaching two courses in the spring. You can sign up for those. But quite simply, our language influences the way we think. And this idea, which is perhaps overstated, emerges from the so-called Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And the essential idea is well stated by Lyra Boroditsky, a Russian lady living in California, who uses examples from extensive research. And let me give you some of the ideas that she comes up with. She did some research in Australia with a tribe whose, um, whose language, like each of our languages, has an influence on the way we think. But they are very focused on orientation. So let me give you an example. This is my right hand, this is my left hand. But that's the English language. If you're part of that Aboriginal tribe, the way you would do it is this is my north hand and this is my south hand. On the other hand, if you pardon the expression, <laughs> this is now my south hand and this is now my north hand. In other words, they change names according to your orientation. If you have a language like that, it's going to affect the way you think. Again, we can overstate the idea, but certainly she's done research into this and looks at different languages to argue her point and concludes, language is central to our experience of being human. And the languages we speak profoundly shape the way we think and the way we see the world, the way we live our lives. So without endorsing this unreservedly, I want to suggest that language shapes our thinking here in America when we use terms from the world of sport. But before I talk about sport in America, I'd like to talk about one particular sport that many, probably most, perhaps all Americans find strange, and that's cricket. So there are two pictures. And the first picture is uh, a photograph in Lords, the great cricket ground in London. It's a cricket match between England and Sri Lanka. And this is a test match. Test match are serious affairs. They last a long time, up to five days. You have two innings for each side. It can also be quite competitive. If you go to the next picture, You'll see this is now a backyard uh, cricket match uh, sent to me by a friend of mine. This is his son. It can be quite competitive. 
But the thing that really uh, Americans find hard to understand is you can have a test match lasting five days and it can end in a draw. <laughs> yeah, n n no winners. And this, is, this no win possibility is something that's just incomprehensible to the American mind because somebody's got to win. So why is this so important in America? And I believe it's because of the language we use. I've been listening for years and also quite intensely over the last several months for little phrases that I hear colloquially all the time. So here's some examples of sports language in contemporary American discourse. Right off the bat, what's the game plan? Do you have a dog in the fight? If so, are you jockeying for position? This could be a sudden death playoff, but don't rely on a Hail Mary pass. We need to up our game, so be a good team player. Don't be an armchair quarterback. I hope you're on top of your game. Better yet, you may be ahead of the game. You could even knock it out of the park. This could be a game changer, but don't drop the ball. Or someone will call you out and you'll be banished to the bleachers. Or typical phrases from regular American colloquial expressions. Sports language permeates regular conversation in America, including the implicit need to win. I intend looking at some relevant biblical passages shortly, but just to get your appetite um, whetted. A glance at 2 Corinthians 10:12, which says, those who measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another are without understanding. Or Galatians 6.4 Let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Both of these suggest that comparison with others is a problem. This is a broadly human issue, of course. And I can't help thinking back to an experience back in the 1960s. I'm at my best friend's, Robert's house, and there is a comic book, nice comic book, not just a quick, uh, short, brief one, a substantial comic book. It's been given to him by his parents. Open the inside cover, and there's an inscription. It was written in the Dutch language, but the words are something like this. For Robert, because he came first. He had just come first in class. And I know what it's like when your kids do well at school. But my problem here is, what message were his parents sending him? That we really value you because you, you came first in class. And I'm a little concerned that he may well have picked up a message from them that they were encouraging the development of a latter-day Diotrephes. Okay, who's Diotrephes? You will find him in the third letter of John in verse 9. He's a rather obscure biblical character. He has a number of faults. He rejects apostolic authority. He also puts people out of the church. But heading the list, we read that Diotrephes liked to put himself first. Anyway, let's move to 21st century America for a closer look at the need to win. As Tom Crattenmaker notes in his Onward Christian Athletes, winning in sports or politics 
or business or any other worldly endeavor may not be a central tenet of the Christian New Testament, but it is a central tenet of American culture. Now, not discounting the merits of excellence and sports or any other endeavor, he cautioned that one ought to be careful, very careful, about holding our football wins as evidence of the merits of Christianity. Apart from the dubious theology, the problem with faith-based victory, with victory-based faith, sorry, victory-based faith, is that every winner eventually loses, and that every star that rises in the sports constellation eventually falls. He goes on to note Ed Yuzinski's concern over all this. What's become so distasteful is this idea that God is only on the side of the winner. And that when the loser gets interviewed, he never gives the glory to God. It could be, I'm sad we lost, but thank God for the opportunity to play today. Yuzinski adds, I'm troubled by the suggestion that God's grace is not with a person whose life is falling apart, or that he's removed himself from the losing locker room. God may be most present in the losing locker room. Nevertheless, an unwitting winning mindset in multiple areas remains. And getting a lot closer to home, I want to pick on a key example. It's from the Biblical Recorder. That's our Baptist uh, newspaper here in North Carolina. And they are reflecting on an important event which took place in June, namely the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. And as you know, there was... uh, an interesting way in which the uh, current president of the convention was chosen. I'd like to read what they have here. Very helpful summary of the events. Following a runoff vote that didn't produce a majority winner on June 14th, North Carolina pastor J.D. Greer announced June 15th he would withdraw from the race for president of the Southern Baptist Convention during the SBC's annual meeting in St. Louis. Greer's decision an effort to help bring unity following a close vote, avoided a second runoff, and left Tennessee pastor Steve Gaines elected by acclamation as president of the SBC. Greer told the convention he prayed the night before and believed we need to leave St. Louis United. Gaines said there's no way God is not doing something in all of this. He said he had decided internally the night of June 14th to withdraw but agreed to serve as president after a conversation with Greer. I just wanted Jesus to be lifted high and the convention to be united, Gaines said. You know what, folks? That's wonderful. That's the way it ought to be. Unfortunately, it's not the way the headline had it, which is, Gaines wins SBC presidency as Greer steps down. A far better headline would have been something like, Godly unity gains accepts SBC presidency as Greer steps down. So, whoever it was, why did you put that heading to point in a totally different direction to what actually happened at the convention? Well, somebody's got a win. Well, let's say a few more things about this and actually a far more serious case. Delivered from a pulpit here in North Carolina in 2004, 
was reflecting on, the guy in the pulpit, the preacher, was reflecting on the first Red Sox World Series win since 1918. And he was saying, it's, 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 uh, it's just like when Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, no, folks. It's, <laughs> it's, it's nothing like when Jesus rose from the dead. Just because your baseball team hasn't won for 86 years does not compare to the event of the ages, which is when Jesus rose from the dead. So if enthusiasm for winning does that to your theology, you've got a problem. So what does the Bible say about winning as such? And we can look at three biblical ideas here. What happens when you take sides or pick a team, which is obviously a prelude to winning, a biblical position on winning, and an encouragement to act differently in our Christian lives? So firstly, taking sides. Let's be clear. The pressure to take sides is huge. And I was kind of amused to see that my lecture was on September 27th, and as it turned out, the first presidential debate was on September 26th, the night before. So I don't have to tell you that at this stage of America's race for the presidency, the pressure to take sides is huge. But that's all I'm going to say about politics. Does what I have to say have relevance? Yes, but you can, put, you can connect the dots. I'll leave that to you to do. But I do intend to turn to a political example from a very complex part of the world, and that's the Middle East. And I'm reflecting in particular on John Stewart's question to President Obama on July 21st, 2015. And he asked him, whose team are we on in the Middle East? Well, do you know anything about the Middle East? This is a complex region. You have Sunnis and you have Shiites and you have Arabs and Kurds and Turks and Iranians and, and Jews and Israelis and, and you have Al-Qaeda and you have Al-Nusra and you have ISIS and you have the Saudis. and It's, it's kind of complex. But let me tell you just how, with all respect, stupid this question is that John Stewart put to President Obama. It's like getting one of these. Rubik's Cube. So this is the Middle East. And, um, but I'm going to pick a team. Which team should I pick? Well, okay, my name's Green Ham, so let's go with the green team, all right? So let's see what we can do. Whoopee! My team won. Look, 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 look. But the, the rest doesn't do too well. And this is the dilemma of the Middle East. Maybe you're pushing one team, but you know there's some other players who can cause all sorts of carnage. And quite frankly, if we're going to think about the Rubik's Cube and the Middle East, we are actually squares. We're not players. Ultimately, there's only one player, and that's God himself. For anyone to think that uh, you can just do a few things with the Rubik's Cube, and I did it rather quickly, by the way, to be perfectly honest with you, 
Uh, Dr. Okwan lent this to me, one of his son's things, and I've messed the whole thing up. I did that deliberately. He gave it to me solved. I unsolved it. And then I had to resolve green. It took me 10 minutes. So it took me a whole lot longer in my office than I just took now. But be that as it may, we are just squares in the situation. We're not players. We, we're, not the, we're not the putters together, if you know what I mean. And perhaps you should add too, this is just a three by three Rubik's Cube. You can actually get five by five Rubik's Cubes. That's a little closer to the situation we're looking at in the Middle East. Or put, um, put differently, we could think of it as a stew. Have you ever asked which ingredient wins in a stew? It's not quite the question one asks, is it? And of course, this is in a context where the stew is about to rot. You don't really want to focus on one flavor out of many. And so, really, the complex Middle East situation and other conflicts, we know more than the colors in the puzzle or flavors in the stew. Anyway, what does the Bible say? I want to walk you through three passages, and you won't see those words up on the screen. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you brought your Bible or you have it uh, available to you in some way. But I'll read the passages and discuss them. The first is in uh, the Old Testament, Joshua, chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. The people of Israel have crossed the Jordan River. This is after God has brought them out of Egypt under Moses. Joshua has taken over. He's the new leader. And now Joshua is acutely aware that he's in enemy territory. And so anticipating the coming battles... We take up the reading, Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And it becomes clear that this is an encounter with God himself. And here's the big thing. Joshua rightly concerned about is this guy with a drawn sword who's obviously uh, dangerous for us or for our enemies? No, Joshua, you need to completely reorient your priorities. It's where you fit in with God that matters, not whether you can somehow squeeze God onto my side as opposed to their side. And so it's very clear the answer is a categorical law in Hebrew, no. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua rightly worships him and asks for instructions. Interesting too, takes his sandals off. This is a fairly common way of uh, treating a holy place when there's a holy, the holy God himself being there, uh, revealing himself there. But if you take your sandals off, you probably aren't going to be too well equipped to, um, to run around and do things military. In other words, he's vulnerable here. And that's precisely where you need to be. Um, God's going to be orchestrating this battle, not you, or not you, Joshua. And certainly you are not going to squeeze the God of the universe into your mold, even though you are doing what God has commanded you to do. 
So there we see an example from the Old Testament, this idea of getting in tune with God, not trying to get God in tune with our side, our team. Let's move to the New Testament, and the first passage I'd like to look at is in Luke chapter 13, and the first five verses. I don't know if you appreciate just how radical this passage is. Let me read it to you and we'll discuss it. Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We didn't know exactly what the situation was, and the context, by the way, is Jesus has been speaking about getting right with your accuser, and it's clear from the context your accuser is God himself. You need to be right with God. It seems like this is an attempt to get Jesus to take sides in a very volatile political situation. What may well have happened is uh, some Jews going to perform sacrifices in Jerusalem um, had been killed by Pilate's forces and they had disguised themselves as Jews, had knives under their cloaks, and then in the midst of the crowd just began stabbing, killing people. That way their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. And it's in a fairly recent event, presumably, which was meant to evoke anger. Can you believe what Pilate did to us? Are you with us against those dastardly Romans? That's what the temptation is for Jesus. And of course his words are to, to turn it around and say, were the Galileans worse sinners? No. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Essentially turns the whole thing around and says it's the people who were died People who died are the ones you need to focus on, not the perpetrators. And more important than that, are you in right standing with God? And then he goes on to talk about a tragedy which must have taken place where this tower falls on uh, these people um, in Jerusalem. But just to get an idea of how drastic this is, I want to contextualize it a bit. So if we had a similar situation for where we are right now, the question would be something like, there were present at that time people who told him about the people of Nice who were killed by an Islamist driver of a truck, 86 victims. And then Jesus said, do you think those people of Nice were any worse sinners because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 297 who died in the earthquake in central Italy, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem or who lived in Italy, who lived in America? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all, all likewise perish. We could use more recent examples, and sadly there are so many to draw from. The, uh, the shooting in Houston, 
uh, stabbing in, uh, in Minneapolis, shooting in Washington State. Exactly the same thing. But can you imagine speaking of these victims, and I don't want to denigrate the tragedies in any way, but I want, do want to emphasize just how drastic Jesus' words are here. In other words, don't get caught up in the anger of they did it to us, but see the bigger picture. Where do you fit in with this as far as God is concerned? And what is a lot clearer is if we turn still in Luke to chapter 9 and verses 23 to 26. Here we find uh, Jesus giving a very strong uh, challenge. And we read Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For, if, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That, if you like, uh, brings it all together. Ultimately, it's your relationship or not to Jesus that has ultimate consequences. This is really where we have to understand what taking sides is all about. Are you on God's side? You can only be on God's side through the merits and work of Jesus Christ. And this is what he is um, what he's making so clear, that you can gain the whole world, but forward yourself if you are ashamed of me and my words in this generation. So that, I think, brings it together quite well, just to remind us that taking sides must be theological, must be God-oriented. I think cemented in this basic idea of siding with God and his way in Christ. In other words, not trying to get him to side with our team. We can now move to the challenges linked to a Greek word. That's the word nakao, which means to conquer. And that's probably the closest term we have in the Greek New Testament to winning. So let's have a look at all this under the heading Biblical Winning. And uh, as a good student should do, I went along to the library and did some research. And um, so now I'm quoting you a German scholar who's been translated, Bahnfeind, who discusses Nakao in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is edited by Kittel. By the way, typically in the seminary, we just say Kittel says this and Kittel says that. Although, of course, different scholars actually write the different articles. Anyway, I'm quoting from Bahnfeind, who writes in Kittel about this uh, idea of, of victory or winning in the New Testament. He says, looking a bit broader, the word group denotes victory or superiority, whether in mortal conflict or peaceful competition. Yet, is the human eye sharp enough to discern between genuine and apparent victory? Can mortals ever finally achieve true victory? It's interesting, the, the great golfer, Arnold Palmer, has just passed away and um, certainly um, don't want to minimize his achievements. But again, when a, a great man like that passes, we are reminded of mortality. 
This man is mortal. Each one of us is mortal. And hence the question, can mortals ever finally achieve true victory? There has to be something more. Let's see a bit more what, uh, what Barnfind has to say. Moving to Greek translations of the Old Testament, God's victory is also the only answer one can give to the question of the meaning of evil. Then, as far as its use in the New Testament is concerned, the word nakao is in the New Testament a word of promise, an eschatological word. In other words, dealing with the future, what's still to come. But the promised nikan is materially no other than the nikan of Christ, the victory which we look forward to is Christ's victory. Unless you share in Christ's victory, victory ultimately will not be yours. Quoting from Barnfind some more, though the horseman of the apocalypse seems to win an obvious provisional victory, which is all the, the death and carnage we read about in Revelation, both yesterday and today the ultimate victory of believers is being worked out not merely in hope, but also in faith and love. And this whole idea, moving back specifically to the scriptures, is supported to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. You're familiar with these, um, uh, these, these letters, Jesus, the risen, ascended, glorified, Lord Jesus Christ, writing to these letters, at the beginning, to these churches, at the beginning of Revelation. And each of them encourages biblical conquerors. You have a phrase, something like this, to the one who conquers, I will. That's the word of the Lord to each of those churches. Um, phrased somewhat differently in each case. And what kind of conqueror is this? Well, it's spelled out specifically in Revelation 12:11. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Isn't that something? These are people who might be put to death at a moment's notice, yet they are conquerors because of their uh, association with the Lamb and the blood of the Lamb, the one who died on the cross for them. So, biblical conquerors, who we should perhaps call sinners, yet winners, already have ultimate victory, guaranteed by the Christ who died for our sins and rose victoriously, in whom we trust, regardless of the cost in the here and now. So, how should we then live? And that brings me to our final major heading, which is be a true winner, albeit a sinner. And we get a better way spelled out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul writes, do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified, or perhaps better, I myself should fail to meet the test. So there's this encouragement to really get engaged in the competition, 
to, to exercise strong self-discipline. In fact, in verse 25, he talks about every athlete exercising self-control. That's in the middle voice, where the subject acts in an intense way that concerns the subject. And so certainly you get the idea of, 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 of hard work and um, taking this seriously. But what you don't see is comparison with other believers. Because guess what? Every believer will win the prize because of Jesus. That makes all the difference. And so to summarize this, this passage here, diligence, even hardship, is indispensable but it doesn't entail beating the other guy. I think Robert Roberts captures this in his The Sanctification of Sport, Competition and Compassion. And he writes, the other kind of competition is in a playful spirit and when perfectly invested with the Holy Spirit has no undertone of threat to anyone's self-esteem. However hard the competitors play against each other, there is the enormous plasticity of humor in which loss is ultimately inconsequential and winning equally so. And the real winner is everybody concerned. And I can't help thinking of upward sports. Of course, you have upward basket sport, but essentially it's many sports have been brought into, uh, into the, uh, under the umbrella. And so upward sports essentially encouraging children to do as well as they can. My nephew benefited from this when he visited us 10 years ago. And a sportsman, he is not. But uh, upward sports certainly uh, helped him. And basically they believe that every child is a winner. In similar veins, Stephen Covey explores a win-win concept in his The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In contrast to a lose-win scenario where negotiators are pitted against each other and you have suppressed feelings, trampled values and resentment, someone with a win-win mindset would seek to keep discussing the issues until a solution was reached they both felt good about. And that solution, the third alternative, would have been synergistic, probably something neither of them had thought of on his own. Even if the other party has a win-lose mindset, he advocates genuine courtesy, respect, and appreciation for that person and for the other point of view. You stay longer in the communication process. You listen more. You listen in greater depth. You express yourself with greater courage. You aren't reactive. You go deeper inside yourself with strength of character to be proactive. You keep hammering it out until the other person begins to realize you genuinely want the resolution to be a real win for both of you. Put differently, consider Jesus' admonition in Mark 10, 42 to 43. What's happened here is uh, James and John want to be seated on Jesus' left and right. The other disciples very upset uh, to hear this. Jesus has a word for them all. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. In other words, true winners are servants like Jesus, our Savior. So to conclude, I want to look at three examples. One from South Africa, one from Jordan, and one from here in the U.S. 
South Africa with its legacy of interracial oppression and conflict, Jordan with its challenges for the handicapped, and the US in the aftermath of a tragedy. I'd like to tell you a bit about Adrian Flock. He was the South African Minister of Law and Order from 1986 to 1991, and a key enforcer of the brutal side of apartheid. Separation of races was apartheid, but essentially the blacks had to be kept in their place, and that was brutally ensured by people such as Adrian Flock, who had the authority as the Minister of Law and Order. With a great background article on him entitled, I have sinned against the Lord and against you. Will you forgive me? Well, what happened? Well, after the fall of apartheid in 1994, uh, Flock has uh, retired, but his wife just falls apart. She commits suicide. The Gideons, the people who placed Bibles, placed a thousand Bibles in her remembrance. And Flock's wondering, who are these people? Why do they do this? What are they about? And although he's grown up in a nominally Christian environment, he now starts to read the Bible. Guess what? He gets converted. Now, as a believer in Christ, he, um, uh, he has a different way to go. But firstly, as Fairbanks writes, traditional Afrikaner culture is brashly dominant, self-confident, possessed with a strong conviction of its own exceptionalism. But the Gideon's gesture led to his conversion and then to a desire to apologize to his victims and practice restitution. So what he does now, and he's almost 80 years old, he regularly visits the mothers of 10 youth activists killed by the police. In other words, killed under his authority as a responsible minister. Well, one day, as he's doing this, he has an unexpected encounter. And remember, he gave the authority for the killings of these young men. He's now trying to enact restitution towards the mothers. I want you to see exactly what happened one day, unexpectedly. Hello, how are you? Riyagi, Biggie Biggie. That's fantastic. Hello, hello. Hello, Sassy, how are you? Hello, you said you're lekker kayer by the mensies. How are you, my brother? Are you fine? Hey, how was the Christmas? Just nice. Nice. Oh, what is your name? Susan. Susan. Yeah. Why am I not helping you? Huh? Why am I not bringing food to you? Yeah. Yeah. Flock. Yeah. Yeah, man. And no? And no? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> 
But I will now see you every month. I will bring you something every month, something to eat. Can I help you? Can you people ever forgive us for what we did to you people? Do anything. I must. Well. I'm sorry that I that I shocked you. I didn't. I've never seen you before. No, I didn't realize that I would meet you today. It was on the spur of the moment that Maria said, "Let's go in here. There's a mother staying here." I was not responsible directly for the death of your children, but I was the minister. And I take the responsibility for what the police and some of the Defence Force people did to your children. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm really so sorry about what happened whilst I was there and whilst I support apartheid and whilst I, 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 I support the things that we did. I, if, if, if I've known about it, I wouldn't have complained about it. I wouldn't have stopped the police because I agreed with it. Please forgive me what happened to your son, your family. Lord, please forgive me. If you're a perpetrator, you can still be a winner. That's what it looks like. Moving to Jordan, a place I really love is the Holy Land Institute for the Deaf and a Christian institution where they focus on people who are born deaf, handicapped, even a few deaf and blind kids. And I want to talk about an individual called Joshua and just show you pictures quickly. Um, the first picture shows you the outside of uh, the Holy Land Institute, and you can see it's a, um, in the Middle East. And moving to the next picture, you see the chapel. But it's a third picture that I want to spend some time on. It's um, a mechanic shop. And Joshua, who should have retired years ago, a guy from Switzerland, together with his Dutch wife, keeps on training young deaf men to look after cars because there's no one else to do it. Essentially does this out of the public eye but just keeps on keeping on pouring out his life in the service of people who would normally be rejected by people in that society, essentially equipping them to be uh, functional people in that society. And then uh, 
just saying a few more things about uh, about Joshua. I used to um, take my own car there for uh, for its oil change and what have you when we were living in Jordan and got to know him quite well. You might be able to tell this from the picture. It's probably the cleanest mechanic shop I've seen anywhere ever. It's amazing that this guy is able to pull this off without the guys being able to hear anything. He just communicates so much just from example and uh, you see the way he's so gentle with these young guys, teaching them to be first-class mechanics. Well, let me finish and uh, I'd like to move to a uh, situation closer to home. And you'll remember that awful attack on the gay nightclub in Orlando in June. And something that didn't get a lot of press but uh, happened the next day is that local Chick-fil-A workers, who of course don't work on a Sunday, everyone knows that uh, Chick-fil-A is closed on a Sunday, they voluntarily, uh, on their weekly day off, chose to come in to prepare sandwiches and then to give them away to people standing in line to give blood for the victims. And uh, here again is an example of what it looked like to be a biblical winner, a winner though a sinner. So each of these three examples, you could be a perpetrator. How can you undo what's happened? You can't. But here's some things to do. Following in the biblical, um, the biblical pattern of, of being a winner, uh, like uh, Adrian Florkdas, or Joshua, out of the public eye, training young men to be mechanics, not concerned about whether anyone notices them, just doing it because it's right. And here, Chick-fil-A workers making the most of a really sad situation, also serving each of these cases. Here we have biblical winners. So, going back to the beginning, certainly our language is permeated with these phrases which talk about, talk about winning. And it's very easy to be sucked into the idea of somebody's got to win. But I think if we look at the scriptures, we get a totally different idea of what winners look like. And hopefully I've given you some idea of just what that is. And so finally, I have a question for you. Understanding what a Christian winner looks like, can you say that the winner is you? Thank you for your attention. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.